I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away, it's a damn shame, what the world's gotten to, people like me, people like you, wish I could just wake up, may it not be true, but it is. All it is, living in the new world, with an soul. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and stars of this show, Mark Wiley and Will George. This is a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, episode 339 here on the network. Before we let Mark introduce our special guest today, I just want to thank two groups of people. First, our faithful subscribers, 55,000 and climbing as of today, 74 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices. We appreciate your support. With your push, we were able to get on iHeartRadio's very powerful podcast network. Make sure you give these guys five stars after this show. With our guest today, I don't think it's going to be very hard to push those buttons five times and write some nice comments underneath it because we help battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. So give us a hand there. Second group of people, Blackout Coffee. Thanks for being our very first sponsor here. Their slogan is Be Awake, Not Woke. Uh, For our faithful listeners, we have gotten you a nice little discount for them to start off the partnership. They're giving all of our listeners 20% off at checkout. If you go to Blackout Coffee and you type in all capital letters, David, D-A-V-I-D, with the number 20, they'll give you 20% out out of checkout. And then in perpetuity, we'll get 15% for all of our listeners. We've worked out that deal with them. So thanks so much to Blackout Coffee. And with that, Mark and Will, welcome back to your show. Great Great to be here, guys. I'm excited about our guest today. We're going to give a bit more time to introduce him because I don't know if everybody's going to know who he is. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, our guest is Jim Palmer, one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball. Uh, You know, Jim signed with the Baltimore Orioles out of Scottsdale High School in 1963. After a year in the minors where he was 15 and five, he went right to the big leagues in in 1965. Um, Had some arm struggles, 67, 68. uh, And even in 69, he he hurt his back, uh, uh, but still ended up with a 16 and four record in the major leagues. Here are some statistical successes that Jim had that uh, I think are really relevant in today's game. Uh, seeing how we'll never see these numbers ever again, I don't believe. Um, Jim was 268 and 152 record in the major leagues for 19 seasons with the Baltimore Orioles. Pitched 3,948 innings with five five times he threw 300 innings or more in a season. Uh, he has a career 286 or run average, which is the lowest uh, in history among pitchers since 2020. Um, he had 211 complete games, four times over 20 complete games in a season with even having 25 complete games in 1975. Through 53 shutouts, 10 seasons with over 34 starts, and he even had 40 starts in 1976. Winningest pitcher in Major League Baseball in the 1970s, he had 16 seasons with a winning record, eight seasons with 20 or more wins. He was eight and three in 17 postseason games with a 261 and two shutouts in the postseason. Uh, at age 19, 
He threw a complete game shutout versus Sandy Koufax in the 1966 World Series. Uh, and uh, it was Koufax's last game pitched. Uh, member of only staff that won 20 games, four, four pitchers winning 20 games in a season. Uh, he had 60 years with the Orioles and still counting. Uh, gave up no grand slams ever in the major leagues. Uh, awards and accomplishments. Uh, Cy Young Awards and Sporting News Pitcher of the Year Awards in 73, 75, 76. Uh, the Joe Cronin Award for Outstanding Achievement in, in American League Season in 76. Inducted into the Orioles Hall of Fame in 1986. The Major League Hall of Fame in 1990. He won six AL pennants, seven Eastern Division championships, three World Series, four gold gloves, six all-star teams, two ERA championships, three times led the league in wins. And along with those three Cy Young Awards, this is uh, people don't really understand how great Jim really was. Uh, he also finished second twice, once uh, three, uh, third and twice uh, fifth. So for an eight year period there, uh, during those years, he, he was in the top five of all of pitchers, uh, finished second in MVP voting in 1973 has a no hitter to his name. Uh, he's the only pitcher to win world series games in three decades in the 1960s, seventies and eighties. He has the longest span between world series reign wins in 1966, all the way to 1983. Um, and he is listed by Sports Illustrated in 1999 as one of the 100 greatest baseball players of all time. Uh, after, after retiring, he went basically directly into broadcasting. Uh, he's worked for ABC, NBC, ESPN, CSN, Mid-Atlantic. Uh, he's announced games in the ALDS, ALCS, NLCS, World Series games, and All-Star games. Um, his charities and endorsements, uh, causes that he's been involved with over 20 years. He's a spokesperson for Jockey International uh, and donated all the proceeds to cystic fibrosis. Uh, he auctioned off his Cy Young trophies and his gold gloves uh, also for cystic fibrosis. He's a, on the advisory board for MLB assistance team. Uh, he's a spokesperson for the National Strikeout High Cholesterol Campaign, and he's also a supporter of autism initiatives. Um, welcome, Jim. I know that was a mouthful, but you've accomplished a heck of a lot, and uh, I just want people to understand that that uh, you know how special you've been to the game and to pitching in particular. Well, that's very nice of you. I want to raise. Uh, I think I need to. I needed you as my agent. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the common denominator, whether it was, you know, I mean, I was adopted at birth, Mark, and, uh, you know, in New York City. And uh, I had parents that taught me the importance of you know, being polite and work ethic and going to school and getting good grades. And, uh, you know, they supported me through because I played three sports in high school. We, we, I eventually ended up going to high school in Arizona at Scottsdale High, you know, and was all state at three sports. But my parents were always there for me. I mean, you know, all the trips I took in Babe Ruth League and, you know, to whether it was Utah or Hawaii, my parents were there, you know, not only supporting me, but the, the whole ball club. So, you know, I was very fortunate. So I certainly have an understanding 
you know, how important my parents were. And then they were the ones that kind of, because I was a year before the draft that said, you know, Houston's offering more money, but I think the right team to sign with are the Orioles. They had kind of told me they didn't have a lot of good young pitchers, which is not the case. But anyway, I sound, you know, and I spent one year in the minor leagues and then I was lucky enough to have Cal Ripken's dad, uh, Cal Sr. up in Aberdeen. We had an all-star team. Um, you know, when you play on a team that goes 80 and 36, you, you know, Eddie Watt was 14 and one and Dave Leonard was 16 and four and Tom Fisher is 15 and six. Mike Davidson was 11 and four and I was 11 and three. All the relievers had losing records, but, um, you know, I just, it, it, and I still, you know, it's funny how you, when you start and you're 18 years old, you're living in a basement, you're making like $414 after taxes, $3 a day meal money. I mean, you'd go on a nine day road trip, they give you $27. We didn't have credit cards, didn't have cell phones. So I kind of learned, and, you know, I still remember opening day in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And, you know, Cal Sr., we're down the left field line, and he said, listen, he said, the Oriole way is pretty simple. He said, uh, we're going to come to the ballpark every day and try to get a little bit better. We're not ever going to let anybody outwork us. We're going to, um, uh, you know, have fun, which means we're going to win. We're going to support each other. And probably the most important thing he ever told me, there are no such things as shortcuts. So pretty good life lesson when you're 18 years old. And, you know, you're an A ball. You want to get the double A and triple A and the big leagues, as did everybody else on the team. But you know, we had a great team, went to instructional league the next year and because um, they said you might have a chance to be in the big leagues. And then at age 19, I, you know, made the ball club kind of because I had to be there uh, and, you know, had a long career. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, of all the people that I know in and out of baseball, your memory is probably the best of anyone. Um if you were thinking back to the moment in your life that you kind of figured out that you could be a special pitcher, was it a, spe- a game, a moment, um, you know, an accomplishment or what? Well, you know, I mean, when I um, was growing up in Scottsdale, um, my mom was a pretty good golfer and all of, you know, the Rex Carr who, you know, he was uh, with the, with the, think St. Louis or no, that was Nelson Berberink and Rex Carr was with the Giants. They said, you know, don't let him play football. And I eventually did and became a all-star wide receiver, but it took a couple of years till somebody talked me into playing. Um, but so I was kind of on the radar when I was like 14 years old, they had come to see a, I was a freshman. They would come to see a senior for, from our Arcadia high school. And so from then on, I mean, people, you know, the scouts said, oh, you know, you're going to have a good career if you don't get hurt and so on and whatever. But, I mentioned that I had to kind of stay in the big leagues when I was 19, 1965. Now, I room with Robin Roberts. Now, Robin was on his way to Cooperstown. He had about 270 wins. He was 38. I was 19. He would go on to have, what, 605 starts, 307 complete games, I think 286 wins. And one of the nicest gentlemen you ever met. And he mentored me. So, you know, even though he probably knew that I was going to take his job. So that's 1965. I go to spring training in 1966 thinking, okay, I'll go to AAA. I'll get, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get back to what I did in A-ball because I pitched 129 innings in, in um, Aberdeen in A-ball and walked 130. Went to instructional league, pitched another three, I think, 53 innings, walked 49. 
but I didn't give up more than two and a half runs a game because I threw so hard. But I kind of learned how to pitch because I got all the innings. So I figured in 1966, we we had traded for Frank Robinson, who would go on to win the Triple Crown and the most valuable player, second time he had done that. Um, but I just went to spring training, and I think my first 10, 10 or 12 innings, I had left 16 or 17 on base, hadn't given up a run. And Steve Barber, the first 20-game winner for the Orioles, hurts his elbow. John Miller, a Baltimore kid, had come up in 65. He hurts his elbow, and now they need a starting pitcher. So I pitched five shutout innings against the Yankees. No hit shutout innings in Miami. Frank takes Al Downing over the scoreboard in the, into the win. We win 2 nothing. And then I pitched against Jim Maloney, who I believe had three no-hitters. We played a night game, and he's making the ball look like a little English golf ball. And he strikes out the first three guys. Brooks Robinson takes him deep. I strike out the first three guys. And then I walk the leadoff hitter in the second inning, and Andy Etchenberry, our catcher, comes out. And he said, oh, let's not have a throwing contest. So I make the ball club because I, everybody gets hurt. And we go to Fenway Park uh, early April. And I went eight to one, hit a home run, throw 177 pitches, walk 11, and strike uh, out seven. <laughs> and uh, Harry the Capper Keen was our pitching coach. You know, I mean, you were you know terrific pitching coach over the years. And Harry had, you know, Harry's a left-handed guy that had played for the Cardinals. I think he won 20 games two or three times in the minor leagues before he got to the big leagues, where he won 20 games a couple of times. But they asked Harry, they said, hey, what do you want to, you know, 177 pitches. That's kind of a lot of pitches. And what do you want to see Palmer do? And Harry, Harry, you know, Harry the Cat said, yeah, we want to get that pitch count down into the 140s. And that was the kind of, so I think when I went to Fenway, which is, you know, I mean, they had, yeah, Stremski, they had, Jim Rice wasn't there yet, but they, you know, had Tony Conigliaro, who was, you know, the young, best young hitter in baseball till he was being a couple of years later. They had a real nice offensive team. And to go to Fenway Park, which is so, I mean, it's physically intimidating because of the Green Monster. But I think mentally, you, you know, you look out there, you feel like a wall is right right over your your right shoulder, uh, you know, because it's in left field. And um, I, I think that probably was a definitive game. And then I also learned that we kept the pitch count, but it didn't really matter. I mean, I threw 169 pitches in a playoff game, beat the A's. And then the next game in the world's first game of the world series in 71 was 171 pitches. So they left you out to kind of take care of business. And I think you learn at a very early age, whether it was a ball, you know, having over almost 190 innings when I was 18 years old, that, that the only way you get better pitching is not to bring somebody in from the bullpen, but to learn how to pitch. Yeah. That's something we don't see anymore. Um, uh, you know, I wish we'd see it a little bit more, maybe not to 175 pitches, but I think they, you know, it always bothers me when they don't think anybody can be special and they don't allow them to be special. Well, they um, do. It's just, it's, it's usually around, I mean, you may get a guy now, I mean, maybe every once in a while. I mean, I watch Alex Cobb try to throw a no hitter. So I think he threw into the one twenties, but, right, right. Um, but normally Guys are look. They're you know one of them. I think one of the guidelines they use, and you know, if you go back to what the twenty seventeen World Series when the when the I mean it was tainted obviously because Houston was cheating, but uh, when they beat the Dodgers, but uh, Rich Hill pitched for them, and they would always take a guy out 
they look at the numbers and the third time through the order, most guys' batting averages go up. Now, Rich Hill's average actually went down. I mean, which is kind of un, un, unusual, but they still took him out. <laughs> and of course, you know, he's been, he's, he's what, a hundred years old. He's been pitching forever. <laughs> so, um, but that that's one of the guidelines. But I guess my question, and you would be able to answer this, Mark, is, um, okay, so they look at the numbers. They figure, okay, guy's batting average goes up the third time through the order. Um, we're going to go to the bullpen. Of course, that doesn't play well in late September or in October because bullpens are exhausted. But why is that? Guys are bigger, stronger. Uh, they pitch less frequently, but you can't get a guy out three times. Um, you know, to me, it's the way you grow up. You know, like it, they're programmed before they ever get into professional baseball that they've done a good job at five innings, that you know, they look in the dugout. I mean, I'll never forget the first time I saw somebody come out of a game and and they made a comment to me, you know, like, is that it? And I go, no, I'll tell you when that that's it. Don't you want to be out there? And, of course, they said, sure, sure. And I said, okay, well, you're in there. But the mentality is now they're rewarded and, and praised for – doing, you know, very little compared to what our ear was, you know, and uh, <clears throat> that, that plays a part because, you know, even as, as trying to be a good pitching coach, you know, you're dealing with guys in front offices and, and the way they grew up uh, that, that limits what they think is capable and they're praised for it. You know, if you didn't praise guys, if you if you made fun of them and said, "Ah, he only went five innings," and the broadcasters said that all the time, and they didn't get praised, oh, he did it. He had a great game today. Guy throws five innings, and they say he had a great game. Are you kidding me? Um, but they hear that, and uh, they're satisfied. And uh, to me, it's dumbed down the game, and it's eliminating special performances by pitchers in particular. Yeah, I think some of the if I go back and think about, you know, go to Boston or you'd go to Oakland and, or, you know, you'd go to Cleveland and you'd be facing sudden Sam McDowell or, you know, Louis Tiant or, you know, Catfish Hunter, or, I mean, they, you know, the A's of course won three world championships, 72, three and four, but they had a really great pitching staff, but uh, that was part of the whole thing. You know, you, uh, you know, it, it was the matchups of, uh, I mean, when Vita Blue came up in 71, uh, I had a one nothing lead, I think, in the eighth inning, and I had runners at first and second and third, and I threw a high fastball and went right by Andy Etchebarren, and our catcher, off the back of the backstop. Etch just turned around. The ball came right to him. He threw it to me, but the throw was a little bit off, and the, the tying run scored, and then the runner from second came around third, and, you know, two guys with 24 gold gloves between them, Mark Belanger and Brooks, they kind of collided, and I lost two to one. So the next time the A's come to town, um, and, you know, the Orioles had great teams. We won 109, 108, 101 games in 69, 70, and 71. So this is 1971. We had a walk-up of over 20,000 people to see Vita Blue pitch against Jim Palmer in, in Baltimore. And we got rained out. <laughs> but that's – so, I mean, that's kind of – I mean, I grew up. I mean, I, I, I remember – you know, I was a big Yankee fan growing up in New York. And I remember the World Series. They were all about matchups. Well, you know, when we played the Dodgers in 66 – you mentioned that uh, Sandy Koufax, who was arguably one of the greatest pitchers of any particular decade, you know, the 60s. I think he was 25 and 7 that year with a 190 ERA. It was his last game, but 
they had Drysdale and they had, you know, Koufax and that usually allowed them to win world series. Yeah. They, uh, they were special and that was, that was a great, that was a great series for, for the Baltimore Orioles. And, uh, you were such a big part of it. You know, now you, you had, you know, I, I, I made comment about you had some injuries earlier in your career. Um, you know, and we've talked about the athletes being better trained now and more physical, um, but they seem to have more injuries than ever. And, and a lot of them, you know, take years to recover. I just want to know, how did you, how did you do that? And how, what's your take on all the injuries now? Well, I, you know, mine was kind of freaky. I, I you know, I got married very young at 18 and uh, my wife, Susan, was expecting my first daughter, which turned out to be Jamie. In fact, her birthday's coming up November 16th. So we win the World Series. I was 20. I turned 21. We buy a little house up in Timonium, Maryland, $26,200. I couldn't. Dave McNally bought a little nicer house for $28,250. I couldn't afford that because I didn't know how long my career <laughs> was going to go. But anyway, so, um, you, you know, you know, I buy the house. Um I had trouble. I couldn't sign for it till I was 21, but I painted the painted the nursery, and that's how I hurt my shoulder. I, all I did was get bicep bicepal tendonitis of the short head of the bicep, which, you know, is pretty important because it's it you when you throw a baseball, you externally and then internally rotate your shoulder, and that's one of the tendons. Is there's two tendons: the long bicep tendon and the short one. Well, eventually, two years later, I would go to Robert Curlin, you know, Curlin Job, you know. Frank Job is the one that did invented the Tommy John surgery. And then Bob Curlin was, you know, Koufax and uh, Elgin Baylor and Shoemaker. I mean, he was the foremost orthopedic guy. And he said, put your hands up. And he, I did. He get, injected my shoulder and was gone in a day. But nobody in, in sports medicine in the East understood how to inject the shoulder. So, you know, so when you're, you have a child, you're making, let's see, after I won the World Series, I got to $15,000. A year, they cut my salary after hurting my shoulder, so I'm making thirteen five, and you're trying to pitch regardless of how your arm feels, and um, that's so that was the the original, um, you know, arm injury. You mentioned that I came back in 1969. Um, um, you know, we had a great team. We, as I mentioned, we won 109 games, and I was like ten and ten and one or ten and two, and you know, kind of rolling along. And then my left leg was a little shorter than my right leg. And I just ended up having some back problems. So I missed 52 days. I went to see Russell Wright, who was the team doctor with the, uh, the, the Detroit Tigers. And, you know, he was also the, um, he was an osteopath and he was also the, I think the, the doctor for the U S weightlifting team. So he had certainly seen back problems and he goes, Oh, we'll put a lift in your shoe. I'll inject your back. And I came back and, you know, I pitched a six, nothing six inning shutout against the twins. And the next game was a no hitter. So if you, I guess my message here is if you get the right doctors, <laughs> you have a real good chance of, of getting well, but Mark, to, to your question, I think now um, they baby pitchers when well, they, well, they baby them, but they also want to protect them. And then you have MRIs. Um, it's kind of interesting when you look at the amount of innings that guys pitch. And it's, I always thought that, you know, when you're trying to get Rice, Fisk, and, and, and uh, Yaz out with a one-run lead in Boston, you, you learn a lot of things about yourself. You learn about your condition. And you learn how smart you are. You learn about your heart. You learn about your, you know, intestinal fortitude. And 
guys don't get to do that anymore. So, you know, I think, but we used to, you know, at the all-star game, I, I back that, you know, 170 pitches or 170 innings, 174 innings. If guys pitch 170 innings now for the year, and you know, the all-star game is not the halfway. It's a little bit farther than that. So, but I think if, if you looked at, and you mentioned the 71 Orioles, we had four 20 game winners, Pat Dobson, Mike Cuellar, Dave McNally, and myself. And, um, you know, we all pitched anywhere from about 260 innings to 300 innings. If we had taken an MRI of our elbow or our shoulder in, in early September, you know, what, what, so we had 80 some wins, I think 52 complete games, something like that, or maybe 72 complete, 70 games. I mean, it was, a, it was a ton of games. If we'd taken an MRI, we would have found some inflammation, but now <laughs> it was, you know, I mean, I, 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 you, you mentioned the what, 38 starts, 40 starts. And the most I ever made was 375 with 175 deferred. So that's what for $550,000. Now it's a long time ago. The minimum salary now is over 700,000. Um, I got about $15,000 a start. Garrett Cole, who's a terrific pitcher, is going to win his first Cy Young this year. I would, would imagine he gets over a million dollars a start. So if some, if Garrett, and he never does, but if Garrett ever went to Brett you know, Bob Boone and said, you know, my shoulder's a little bit tight. They would say, well, then you're not going to pitch. Right. If I went to Earl Weaver and said, my shoulder's a little bit tight, he said, so what does that have to do with anything, you know? <laughs> so it's just, a, it's a different era. And it's, um, um, and, and again, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of talented guys. I mean, the Orioles had a terrific year this year. You know, Kyle Bradish, um, I think he, you know, he won 13 games and, Kramer were actually maybe 12 games and Dean Kramer, who has a chance to be a real good pitcher. If he, if he starts making better pitches and st- stops thinking about metrics and pitch shapes and all that kind of stuff, and just figures out what he needs to do to get guys out. Cause he's can get a guy out three or four or five different ways. And then, uh, you know, Kyle Gibson at age 35, he, he led the team with 192 innings and won 15 games. Uh, you know, but the Orioles had a great year because their guys pitched well. They had the best reliever till he blew out his elbow, Felix Batista. So they won the games they were supposed to win. And um, But again, I think, you know, Kyle Gibson had a great year, pitched 192 innings. And, uh, you know, and, and, and Bradish, as good as he was with an ER, low ERA, I think about 2.82, he pitched 168 innings. So well, it, you know. they just don't ask as much. Jim, with the with the influx of analytics nowadays, as you look at it from the ten thousand foot view now, are there analytics that would have helped you out back then? And, and how do you advise young kids coming into the majors to to make use of it, if at all? Well, I mean, I think they're they're very important. But um, you know, I just I was reading the Boston Globe. They just named Craig Breslow, who was you know pretty good left handed reliever. You know, he was a guy. You know. Um, I think he went to Yale, pitched with actually with Michael Elias, who's probably going to be the executive of the year for the Orioles. Um, and he was saying that uh, he, he and he was with the you know he pitched in the big leagues and then he went went to the Cubs, uh, Theo Epstein and so forth and whatever. And now he's going to run the the Red Sox front office. And he was talking and as a former pitcher, he said velocity is the most important thing, pitch shapes and. Um, you know, maybe spin rate is second and then commands third. So I don't agree with that, but, 
you know, I, so I would say to guys, okay, I want all the information I can, but uh, I, you know, we talked about how wild I was 130 walks, 129 innings in a ball. When I went to instructional league, George Hamburger, who had went on to manage the Mets in uh, Milwaukee had about, I don't know, 12, 20 game winners and five Cy Young award winners. Um, he taught me to throw the ball alone away. And he said, if to do that right-handed to right-hand, you have to have the perfect windup. You got to load, you got to get over your front side. Your lines have to be good. You have to great, have great extension. Now, you know, now it's what your perceived velocity is. In other words, how far down the rubber you get, where you release the baseball. But, um, so, you know, all those kind of things. So I would want all of the information, but at the end of the day, um, can you throw the ball low and away? Can you pitch to both sides of the plate? Do you, you know, do you understand is a hitter, a high ball hitter or a low ball hitter? Does he have power to the opposite field? Um, you know, where can I go when I have to keep the ball in the ballpark? But again, I mean, you know, when you pitched as many innings as we did, and you got in the ninth inning and, and you, you have a one run lead, you go, okay, where can I throw the ball that that's going to stay in the ballpark? And to me, that was on the edges of the plate. Well, you know, it's funny because it's good that he said that, that that he put him in that order, velo, uh, pitch shapes, and then command, because that's the problem for me. Right. Is that if you look at pitchers that don't have a lot of velo that are successful, they do it through command. And then they may have some unique breaking pitches that have natural shapes to them that they developed. But the command is the big element that allows them to compete. So if you take it to an elite pitcher that has an elite fastball and his is command also, now you've got a superstar for me. Um, That's the difference. That's why command is so important. And I will always argue that because, um, you know, and they talk about pitch shapes. I'm so, you know, sweepers and they come up with new names for stuff. You know, I had a, I had a great uncle who played in the minor leagues uh, early 1900s. So, and he told me he was a catcher and he said, we called him in shoots and out shoots. And he told me one time, you got a good out shoot, Mark. And I go, what's that? And he goes, curveball now. <laughs> you, know, you know, and I laughed because they come up with these new names. They come up with new analytics to, to describe something or try to create something. You know, my thing was you knew what a, you knew what your good curveball looked like. You know, you knew what your good high fastball looked like. You know, you knew what all your pitches looked like that were good. And you when you when you didn't deliver those pitches, you knew the adjustments you had to make to get them back to where you wanted them. Well, yeah. but what they're doing now, Mark, as you know, is that they're they'll I mean, I watch them in spring training, they'll throw a pitch and they go right back to the iPad. Right. You know, it drives well, me nuts. Well, well, I understand that. I mean, no, we had a pitcher that gave up six runs and four innings with 10 hits. So I, I watched the game, but I, and then I saw him in Seattle and I said, um, hey, what went on in Cincinnati? He said, well, you know, metrically. And, um, you know, I mean, my pitch shape actually was pretty pleased. And I, I said, really? <laughs> so I said, let me get, you know, I played for Earl Weaver, who, you know, has passed away, but he was a Hall of Fame manager. I said, let me give you an Earl Weaver. I said, if you gave up 10 hits and six runs and four innings, and we had 10 man staff, sometimes nine early, you know, early in the season, I would go. And you told Earl, you know, actually, I'm going to like my uh, metrics and my, uh, my spin rates and all that. 
I'd go, Earl would have said, well, you know, you're going to like them down in AAA because that's what would have happened. So, I, I mean, I do think it's important, but I, I, I used to, well, Jim Cott got in the Hall of Fame what, the, the year before last, right? So um, I used to play a lot of golf with him. And he used to say, don't you kind of think, you know, and, and Jim won 283 games and 16 straight gold gloves. He said, don't you think pitching's kind of feel, feel and touch? And I said, yeah. Yeah, I mean, can you add a little bit? Can you subtract a little bit? I mean, he used to have a, a contest, you know, bet with Earl Batty, who was his catcher for the Twins. Hey, how far can we go without throwing a breaking ball? You know, we'll we'll throw a change up. We'll turn it over, two seam, four seam, in and out, up and down. And that's kind of the way you can learn to pitch. But once again, if you don't get a lot of innings, I mean, I, I thought the Orioles, you know, they Maybe they struggle a little bit in the playoffs, but Texas just won the World Series, and you know they beat them three in a row. They hadn't lost a series since May of two, 2022. And then they got swept, you know, by Texas. Um, but I thought that our guys would run into more problems, and they actually went to a six-man staff. But I thought they run into some problems because they just never got enough innings, either because of the pandemic or because of what happens um, in the minor leagues with young pitchers and the innings they pitch. So. You know, we never had that problem. Uh, but, you know, again, it's it's a different world. Yeah, you know, and, you know, it's funny. We've talked about it before. Even guys that pitch with you that were well, maybe not with the Orioles, but with a lot of teams, the, the fourth and fifth or maybe the fourth starter, he also pitched winter ball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and people don't even realize, you know, how many innings they threw in winter ball after throwing maybe 200 innings in the major leagues. Uh, as a as the the fourth starter, so and now you're back in the winter ball. You know, it, it just amazes me. There's nobody has told me that in the analytics world um, why throwing a lot hurts you. When you can go back in history and see guys that threw often and lots of innings, even winter ball, and didn't really get hurt. And the only argument, the only thing I can say is, is that they chase velocity so much and nastiness that they don't learn how to pitch and they don't know how to, how to pitch within their ability to throw a baseball. You know, the velocity range that they learned through repetition that was the most effective. And kids don't learn that now. Well, I used to coach a Little League team. Uh, Mike Adams is one of the great, you know, great teaching pros down in South Florida. So... Um, I had, you know, little leaguers. I had them when they were 10, 11, 12, 13, or 12. Um, Chris Bull said, actually, you know, went to the big leagues, got, I think, a million eight to sign. I had three kids that got over a million dollars to sign. And one day he brings out the radar gun. And I go, put that back in your trunk. I go, we don't, we don't need that. I'm going to, all thing I want to teach you, because I went through it, I, I'm going to teach you how to throw strikes. I'm going to teach you how to have a good windup. I'm going to teach you how to have fun. I'm going to tell you to play other sports because I don't want you just to play baseball. And, you know, I don't care if it's soccer. I don't care if it's basketball. I mean, football, obviously, you get more of a chance of getting hurt. But do something else that makes you a better athlete. So, um, but the game, I mean, the, listen, the game, the game's still a great game. And there's still a lot of really good pitchers. It's just they don't ask to, you know, they're not asked to do as much. And, you know, it's more of, I mean, it's always been a T game. I, I mean, you talked about what I, what I have, 211 complete games. Um, I probably wouldn't, if I had Mariano Rivera in my bullpen, I probably wouldn't have pitched the ninth inning. 
and maybe I would have pitched another two or three or four innings or more years. I don't know, but the, you know, the game has changed and you know, again, what Mark, you know, as well as anybody is, you know, forming pitching coach and scout, uh, the radar guns are now, at least scouts tell me this, about three to five miles per hour faster because they measure it out of your hand than at home plate. Yeah. yeah. Way faster. Yeah. Will's a scout and Will's yeah. made that point on other podcasts because I'm watching games and I'm going, that's not 98 miles an hour. I'm sorry. I've seen too many pitches in my life uh, and they're firing that up on the screen and <laughs> guys are right on it. You know, it's, uh, you know, guys that threw real hard, everybody knew they threw hard, but I always come with this when, when they used to ask somebody years ago, uh, if a guy, if they hadn't seen the pitcher, they said, how good is he? They said, he's really good. They didn't ask how hard he threw. They said, no, he's really good, man. I, I don't know. He commands the ball. He's got a good fastball, but I, you know, I would never know how much he threw, how fast it was, but they knew guys that were good. And, uh, you know, today too often they say the first thing that comes out of anybody's mouth is how hard the guy's throws. You yeah. know, you were, you were, uh, it's funny you mentioned Curlin and Joe because I did the same thing when I was like 23, I had really bad biceps tendonitis and the twins at the time, they didn't really have any doctors that could diagnose. They had me with gout. They had me with arthritis. They came up with all kinds of weird stuff. Um, I finally, the trainer in the, in instructionally told me, he says, why don't you go back to Curlin and Job in Los Angeles when you go home? Because I lived in San Diego at the time. And I had seen Curlin and Job for my knee when I was in college. So, uh, I went to them and, and they did the same thing as they did for you. They gave me, they said, Oh, you got biceps tendonitis. Like nobody else diagnosed it. They just came, they saw me raise my arm and said, Oh, you got biceps tendonitis. Let me give it a shot. He said, if it doesn't take, come, we'll come back in another month and we'll give you another one. And they gave me a throwing program. Now you know about this, Jim, because I've given it to you before. I, I adapted my throwing program off the initial one I got from Curlin and Joe. And what people don't realize is how many throws you could make in like a three-day period and then rest a day and then go back out for three more days without any possibility of injury. And if you if you hurt the first day of my throwing program, it, it there's something wrong. So you're never going to get into the – and hurt it more. You're going to find out that you need to go to a doctor and find out what it is. But – Every guy that I've ever put it through it, nobody's ever had a problem unless they had a problem before we started. Well, and, you're, uh, you know, you, I, I don't know if you ever wrote a book or pamphlet pamphlet on that. You know, I have a friend, Randy Myers, used to do all kinds of, he was a, a physical therapist and he did a whole little thing for golf pros, you know, stretching and strengthening and all that. I mean, if you look at golf pros nowadays, they're much, much fitter than, not that they're, I don't know if they can play any better than Jack Nicholas or you know, or Gary players or whatever, but at the end of the day, they're pretty fit. And they, you know, so there are certain things, but, um, I mean, I, you know, I, when I started, uh, when you went to a doctor, I mean, they looked at, you know, most of them had no idea. I mean, when I tore my rotator cuff, you know, trying to really favor the bicep tendonitis I had, uh, I was actually pitching for Cal Ripken senior in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And I got two strikes on, um, Billy Canigliaro, Tony's brother. And I tried to throw a high fastball and my arm was really bothering me and I heard everything pop. So I, you know, I stayed there about 10 days. I went back to Baltimore and, you know, I go see the doctor 
really no answers until I'm combing my hair and Ralph Salvan, our trainer says, Jimmy, you got a hole in your back. And I had torn the infraspinatus, which is a, one of the rotator cup. And, you know, I didn't go to the team doctor. I went to a, a physiatrist who actually did a nerve conduction test, gave me some exercises. And, you know, as it came back, you know, then I you know, went 16 and four, won 20 games, eight out of nine year. And was, it was able to get back because I found a doctor as Arthur Pappas, who was, you know, owned part of the Red Sox and was an orthopedic specialist up in Boston. You know, he's the first guy that ever gave me rotator cuff exercises. So now, I mean, if you're a pitcher now, you have, you have, you know, you, you got chiropractors in the lock, in the clubhouse, you got massage therapists, you got four trainers, you have laser machines, you have, you know, ice pools and all kinds of stuff. We had um, pretty much nothing, <laughs> maybe ultrasound, but the game is, I mean, you make a great point. I mean, I think you have to condition your arm like anything. And that's why I was kind of happy to see a lot of the young Oriole pitchers. They were able to get through, you know, 130 to 150 innings, which used to be a breeze, but it looks like hopefully they'll, they'll come back. It'll be very interesting to see after the Orioles win 101 games one year. You know, I always found that they, you know, if you won 15 games, they take the 15 wins away. If you won 101 games as a team, they take the 101 wins and then you go to spring training. And you got to figure out how to be as good as you were the last year or the last week or kind of like owning a restaurant, you know, where you have a great Friday night and, uh, you know, the chef's feeling really good and the maitre d's seating everybody properly. And then the next night the chef has an argument with his wife and that's when the food critic comes in. Things don't go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, a lot of things are different, but, uh, you know, I was rooting for the Orioles' young guys. I didn't think they would get all the way through um, just because of their youth. Um, but uh, we've seen teams like that before. You know, they get close, and then they get better and better and better. And they they have a pretty good farm system, and they've taken big advantage of the draft, um, having, having all those high picks over the years. Um and that, that's a tribute to the scouting because, you know, you got to pick the right guys. You know, how many teams have picked the wrong guy when they had a number one pick of the top three or whatever, and the guy never shows up uh, or he gets hurt. Um, so, you know, that's a tribute to the, the Orioles scouts that they've, they've, uh, they've filled up. Uh, they've filled up the Orioles with the opportunity to have some pretty good minor league players. Yeah, well, they're, you know, AAA. I mean, Norfolk, uh, they went 90 and 59. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 what you don't see anymore because those guys get used to winning, so they get to the big leagues, and it's the same thing. When I was with the Indians, that's the way we were. We won at almost every level every year during those golden years of the Indians when we were going to the World Series and playoffs every year. Um, those kids came up, and there was no other option. Winning was the way it was. That's the way they always had done. Now, with the excuse of development. Sometimes they're so careful with these prospects that they don't let winning is down the list of what's important. Yeah. Well, I, you know, again, I mean, uh, the Orioles, uh, Dan Duquette, I mean, and, and Mike Elias talked about that. Mike runs the, the Orioles now. He talked about, I mean, Dan Duquette, if you look at the Orioles ball club, he, he was responsible, even though he's no longer there. You know, I mean, Mullins, uh, Hayes, uh, Mountcastle, um, you know, Grayson Rodriguez, he, you know, the Orioles don't really draft a lot of uh, pitchers in the high rounds. 
he was the number one guy that, you know, that Dan Duquette picked. And he's got a chance to be a real good pitcher, you know, again, because he's got a lot of talent and um, he works hard and, he, and he, you know, he wants to get better. And that's a lot of times that's pretty important thing in, in, for a young pitcher to not liking to lose and not liking to struggle. Not that he ever did that in the minor leagues because he dominated. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I saw, I saw him in double a and Rushman was his catcher. Um, and he, uh, that was the most excited I've been about a pitcher in a long time. Cause he had the size, the strength, he had the pitch mix and, you know, and Rushman would call his changeup. You know, a lot of guys don't get their changeup developed till they get to the big leagues because they just breeze through the minor leagues. Well, he was for, he forced him to use a changeup. So, you know, uh, I think there's a bright things on the horizon for, for Grayson. No doubt. But, uh, you know, the, you know, it's amazing to me that, uh, uh, the messages that are, that are sent are mixed depending on the organization, you know, uh, for one organization, it's, it's, uh, it's all about velocity. Uh, it's all about, you know, bat speed and, and launch angle and, and there's some other organizations I think now are starting to realize that, you know, some old school stuff is important. What, what are some of the old school stuff you still think is really valuable? Well, conditioning and, and you know, you're going to play in Baltimore. You better do your work outside. You know, they have such nice facilities inside. You can run on the treadmill. You can do this. But that's, that does not, you know, simulate, simulate what, what you're going to do when it's 97 degrees and, you know, you have to pit. I mean, I still remember uh, what Gil Mesh, remember him? Pretty good young yeah. with Seattle. And then he got a long-term deal with uh, Kansas City. He came in with Seattle one night. It was about 98 degrees and, you know, with the humidity to match. And um, I saw him the next day. I said, hey, how'd you feel in the fourth inning? It looked like you were a little tired. He goes, I was seeing stars <laughs> because, you know, I'm not used to pitching in that kind of humidity. So, you know, I mean, conditioning, you just have to, I always thought you had to try to control all the variables you could control. You know, your preparation, your rest, um, conditioning. Um, you know, again, if you if you play on winning teams, as you mentioned in the minor leagues, you're used to rooting for each other. You know, we used to – it's funny, Mike, the late Mike Flanagan, you know, Flanny was used to say very simply, you know, a lot of times you trade for players and you try not to do this, but you play for – Trade for players that are more concerned about the name on the back of the uniform than on the one on the front. And I yeah. never really thought about that until, you know, we and we didn't have a whole lot of those players. But you could tell. And then, of course, if you have a, a good enough clubhouse, um, you know, you can change that. But if, if you know, and I, I think one of the common themes that I heard this year with the Orioles, you know, they went from 52 wins to 83 wins, and then they went to 101 wins this year. Um, 101 and 61 win the division um, is they, it was, it's a lot of fun to win. And um, I mean, it is. And, but again, if you don't know what winning's about, so again, it, I, it, all the teams I played for in the minor leagues, and I didn't play for a lot, but you know, Earl Weaver came out of Elmira, the double A, they won. Rochester had a great organization. Um, you know, they always used to win. You know, the same with all the A teams. The, the Orioles just had really good players. And then what kind of guy are you picking? I mean, you know, can he hit? But also is he a quality human being? And I think the Orioles have made, as you mentioned, a lot of good decisions uh, going down that road. Yep. Jim, those are great, 
points. I, I, I got asked a question the other day, and I'm glad you hit on it for our young audience. Uh, for over 20 plus years coaching collegiately, I asked what was one philosophical thing that I came away with that was more important than anything else. And I, I said it kind of tongue in cheek and joking, but I, so I, I, I figured out that winning is a heck of a lot more fun than losing. And that, uh, but you got to put the work in. And we, we have uh, Burt Blylevin, Hall of Famer like yourself, was on the show earlier this week. And Jim Cott, Hall of Famer, does a, does a podcast with me on Wednesdays. And uh, I asked them both about the, the preparation they put in with their lower bodies. Because to throw 300 plus innings like you did, you've got to be conditioned down there. Now, Burt talked about his running. Jim talked about riding stationary bikes, but he was also a, a very accomplished disco dancer by his own admission late at night. Um, what were some things that you did to keep your lower half in shape? And I, I heard um, a couple of people this past week said you were a heck of a center fielder during BP. So, um, what, what, George Stoller, our first baseman, said, I, he goes, you're, you're our third best outfielder. I said, boy, that doesn't bode well for this year, does it? Uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, I, old Mike Messina, you know, who's in the Hall of Fame and actually won, what, 270 games. Moose was one of those guys, too. Um, I played for Cal Ripken Sr., so I knew what conditioning was about. You know, again, no such things as shortcuts. I mean, are you, you know, we used to run as a team. You know, we used to run 18 foul line to foul lines. Scotty McGregor, who, you know, had some really good years for us. We traded for him in 76 from the Yankees in one, you know, he won 18 games one year, won 20 games. He goes, I made a mistake of not being in shape when I got to Miami for spring training. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, he said, well, you'd run 18 foul and foul lines and maybe stop 15 seconds between each one. And he said, when you, and you led the running, so therefore we all had to run that. I said, well, I, you know, my, girls wanted to, my girls wanted to go to the beach, so I, I wanted to get out of there. But you did the work. And, you know, probably, it, it, probably the, one of the best compliments I ever got was, you know, I used to sit with the late Mike Flanagan. Flanny won the Cy Young in 79. And he came up, I think, probably in spring training, 75 and then 76. And um, I pitched five innings in spring training, and I'm running in the outfield in Miami during the game. They used to allow us to do that. And Earl Weaver called him over. He said, Flanagan, get over here. Sit here. And he pointed down next to him. And he said, um, he goes, uh, see that guy out there? And he was pointing to me. And he said, just do what he does, and you'll never have a problem. Now, that's the ultimate compliment. Now, I didn't learn that yet. I mean, I learned it from Robin Roberts. And I, you know, it's funny. When I got to the Orioles in 65, they didn't do a lot of running. But Dick Hall did. He was a relief pitcher. He had come up as a third baseman, passed away about, I think, about a year ago. But he was a you know position player with the Pirates and ended up being a really good reliever. But he actually, you know, he was a highly conditioned athlete. So I hung with him. Because a lot of the, you know, Milt Pappas was, a, you know, won over 200 games, but he didn't run hard. Steve Barber, they, they were allergic to running. But I had played for Cal Ripken Sr. And, you know, one of the variables, you know, the lack of shortcuts is how high, highly conditioned. I don't think my, you know, I used to think that, I don't know if I was in better shape than in the guys I pitched against, but I know they weren't in any better shape than I was. So I think you try to, again, going back, you try to control as many variables as you control. And the other thing is, uh, you know, people say, well, why did you play for the Orioles your whole career? And I said, because we won <laughs> – yeah, I'm raising my kids and yeah, probably could have gone and made money somewhere else. But I knew what the Orioles were about. And, um, you know, people go, well, you know, you got to the Hall of Fame. And I said, yeah, because of the guys I played with. I mean, they were terrific players and they all cared. And it was not only that, the coaching staff and the, and the scouts and the front office. Um, you, you knew if you played for the Orioles, you were going to play on a winning team. And 
Um, even our bad years were 90 to 95 wins, uh, you know, or 100 wins when the Yankees in 80. The Yankees won 103, we won 100, and they didn't have any kind of playoffs back then. So that was a little frustrating. But we again, you, we had a really good year. You know, yeah, you had to live with it. Uh, you know, I, I signed with the Orioles out of high school as well in 77. And uh, thank you for your mentorship and uh, Cal Ripken Sr. and Ray Miller and people like that that I got to play for and learn from. And, uh, you know, everything that you've said in this podcast has, uh, is so true and uh, probably the reason that I learned so much about the game. Uh, Cal was my roommate in the minor league, so I had the wisdom coming through Cal from his dad as we were going through the minor leagues together. But uh, I will share my first big league camp in 78. I got invited in after instructional league and first day of spring training and uh, you were first in line to run and Flanny and McGregor said, hey, Lefty, why don't you run with Jim? Uh, uh, I was uh, six feet tall, 190 pounds with short, fat legs. And I'm trying to keep up with you after flying in from New Jersey <laughs> the day before the, in the Miami heat. And I, uh, but uh, that mentorship and the things that you taught young pitchers and you were generous with that. Um, I was a left-handed pitcher, but I had a good curveball. And I threw hard and had a good change up and talked to you about pitching up and down the ladder and things that you did. And uh, that's what made the Orioles such a great organization. And, uh, you know, for me, grateful that I got that opportunity to be brought up in baseball in that in that uh, atmosphere. Yeah, the uh, continuity. I mean, again, you know, again, going back to how important parents are. You know, my mom and dad go, you know, I think the Orioles are the right organization. And for the 20 years I played there, we had the best winning percentage in baseball. As Mark said, you know, what, six World Series, won three of them. I mean, the uh, I talked to Steve Hurd, who used to do all our graphics. Uh, he's, he's He does the graphics for uh, the Amazon Thursday game. So he's with Al Michaels, who I work with. with and he said, where, I said, where are you? He said, Pittsburgh. I said, oh, they love us in Pittsburgh. We lost two World Series in 71 and 79, but they were great World Series. Uh, so, you know, I can imagine how excited the people down in Texas are. You know, if the Astros aren't winning, now it's the Rangers. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of yeah. think, I, you know, it's funny. They, I, Ray Davis is their owner. And, um, you know, Chris Young did a nice job putting that team together. But he had, I mean, they spent almost a billion dollars to get better. Yeah. yeah. Kind of nice when you can go out and get Seager and uh, Semyon to play shortstop in second base. That'll that'll make you a better manager. And then they get one of the managers and is, who's going to the Hall of Fame, Bruce Bochy. A little bit of strength up the middle, the old Oriole philosophy too, which, yeah. you know, strong defense up the middle. Uh, those two guys held it down, the center fielder, and the catcher did a really nice job uh, all throughout the series. Not well, you know, he was a former Oriole. Yeah, that's right. Heim did come up in the Orioles system. Well, you know, it's funny. I was a brother. Note: did, did any of you guys you, did you ever face uh, Frank Howard, who just passed away? Hondo? No, no. I, I I got to meet him. Fortunate enough, and what a great guy. But never got to pitch against him. Yeah, I talked. I play, played against his teams in the minor leagues when he was managing. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, my first All-Star game, he was uh, waiting at the door because he didn't like the National League. Back, you know, back then he didn't have interleague play. 
come on, let's beat these guys. I can't tell you exactly the language, but um, and of course, when you're six eight and you're at the front front of the, you know the, at the door of the locker room in, in Cincinnati, I pitch against Seaver. Uh, you go whatever you say, Frank. But um, he had a home run off me in, in, in RFK Stadium, and I lost two to nothing in seventh inning. And so you know, reading the paper the next day, I lose two to nothing and. They said, Frank, what did you hit? He says, I think it was a slider. So I see him at the ballpark. I go, I said, Frank, I said, not only do you beat me with a two-run home run, but then you call my seventh inning fastball a slider. And he started apologizing. <laughs> Jimmy, oh, no, oh, I didn't yeah. mean that. Because that's how nice a man he was. Yeah. And, um, oh, you he know, was and the nicest guy ever. Yeah. He really yeah. was. You know, Hawk Harrelson played, played on the Senators, and he used to take towels and – put him around his fist and kind of, you know, pretend he's boxing with Frank. And Frank, again, you know, he was good-natured, great hitter. Uh, you know, I, I saw an article yesterday where if you looked at his wins above replacement and the, the numbers he put up with the Senators versus Bryce Harper, he was more RBIs, more home runs. You know, maybe not as good a defensive player because he was 6'8". But he was a really good offensive guy. But Hawk's hitting him with these towels, and he said, Hawk, that's enough. And Ken Harrelson kept hitting him, and he picked him up. And then Hawk weighed about 220. He just picked him up, lifted him off the ground, eye level, and he said, I told you, that's enough. <laughs> so I don't know how much weightlifting Frank Howard did, but he didn't, probably didn't need to do a whole lot. Wow. Well, I can tell you this. I was planning – he was managing Spokane, and I was in Tacoma in AAA, and – the um, the umpire, um, it ended on a controversial play at home plate, and Frank had already been kicked out of the game earlier. So he was in the locker room, and the players were going nuts, and uh, they finally got an order, and the game ended, and, and everybody had to go from behind home plate into the locker rooms. And uh, Frank was waiting for the umpires, and – because his players were so upset and the umpire I'll never forget that they went into the under empire's room and shut the door. And it was like a steel door and, and Frank tore it off its hinges. Oh, he tore the door off its hinges to continue to argue with the umpire. Wow. Actually it was near the end of the year. So he got suspended like the last week of the season <laughs> for doing that. But everybody in both teams were looking, they go, he tore a steel door off the hinges. Like everybody was like in amazement how strong. And he was, it was so out of character because he was the nicest man ever. Well, you just don't want to blow a call, apparently. Yeah, not on him. <laughs> you know, you know, that funny, guy. You know, he, play, he played, you know, he played when Ted Williams managed the Senators. And um, there was only one ball hit out of Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, and that was Frank Robinson. Uh, Louis Tiant, Cleveland came in. Tiant started Friday night. We knocked him out. He came back and pitched the first game of the doubleheader on Sunday. And Frank hit a high fly ball that was, again, the only ball that ever went out of Memorial Stadium over the left field um, bleachers. Well, I used to pitch Frank Howard, um, you know, up and in because he had a not he wasn't a hitch. You know, it's a trigger if you can hit. It's a hitch if you can't. So, he, you know, he kind of moved his bat a lot. And I just run the ball in on him, and then Ted Williams comes over, who, you know, last guy to hit 400, says, hey, why don't you move off the plate? So I come out there, and I he's off the plate. I go, now what am I going to do? So I throw him a fastball on the inside half of the plate, and he hits it 
over the corner of the upper deck in Baltimore. And the only thing that keeps it from being the second ball to ever go out of Memorial Stadium is a chain link fence that kept people from falling over into the bleachers. And it was, I, I mean, I saw him hit Mike Cuellar's down away change up in the mezzanine or Dave McNally, you know, used to do the bugle, da 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 and, and he synced it up where Mac threw the ball right as the bugle was playing and he hit it over the top of the center field wall. Uh, Brooks Robinson, who just passed away, said, you know, I jumped for one of his line drives and it ended up in the seats. You know, and it's yeah, Brooks told me that he it, it nicked his glove. He told, <laughs> and then it, you know the old ballpark in in Detroit, you know, which was kind of like a, a coliseum in right and left, very shallow. You had the overhang in right field, but it was four forty five to center field with well, you know, maybe what the upper deck was twenty feet, twenty five feet above. He had a line drive that went four hundred forty five feet and never got any higher than the, I mean, maybe four or five feet over the the chain link fence that went around the ballpark. I mean, he was incredibly strong. And then when he would play first base, every time they hit a pop fly down the right field line, he'd do a big circle. And then he played left field a little bit and he wore out, you know, he couldn't stand still. So he wore out a big, you know, patch of grass out in left field and, and you know, at RFK Stadium in Washington. But yeah, and, and you know, Buck Showalter, who did a great job with the Orioles as their manager, he had him as one of his coaches. He's, he said he was one of a kind. So sorry to see him pass you know and as you get older guys you lose a lot of your friends yeah i've noticed that too yeah sadly. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah but you know i was one last story on frank howard he my first spring training i was with the twins and we went and they were having the washington club with ted williams managing was in pompano spring training and i was standing out in the outfield in right field during batting practice. And uh, somebody introduced me to Richie Allen. And uh, I was kind of surprised he was as small as he was. I thought he was a lot bigger. And uh, anyway, we were sitting there talking and Frank Howard walked into the cage while we were standing there. And he says to us, he goes, uh, he goes, watch Frank take batting practice in the cage. Frank picked up the leaded bat and stood 30 feet from the, from the pitching machine and turned it up full blast. And that's how he was taking BP. Wow. With a leaded bat <laughs> and, and 30 feet from a machine turned up max. It was unbelievable. I'm going, I'm like a, a kid and I'm like, Oh shit. Is this what the major league is like? <laughs> well, it was, you know, you talk about Richie Allen. I, uh, uh, mentioned Dick Hall was a relief pitcher and he gets traded to, to uh, up to Philadelphia after we win the World Series in 66. And, you know, Frank Robinson hits 49 home runs, two in the World Series, wins the MVP, triple crown. So when Dick w- was one of my neighbors, he comes home after his first year in Philadelphia and I said, hey, uh, can you compare Richie Allen to, 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 uh, to Frank Robinson? He says, yeah, 50 feet farther. <laughs> And Frank hit him about as far as you, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about Frank Robinson, but Frank Howard hit him as far as anybody, any human being, but, but Richie Allen could really hit the ball for a little guy yeah. hit about as far as you could possibly, but you know, Mantle wasn't that big either. So no, no, it's amazing. That's what I've told people. I say, you know, baseball, I mean, look at the, uh, look at Carroll and look at Altuve and look at all these guys. That's what, that's one thing that's so great about baseball is that, you know, Size doesn't play into it if you're good enough. 
Yeah, I oh, saw. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was down in Houston doing games. I ran into Greg Biggio at over three thousand hits and doubles, and you know, they're, they're fit guys, and but they're not big, big guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the game. I mean, I don't know. I always thought you know Frank Frank wasn't huge, but I, I, he swung a thirty-five out bat, bat, and he could. You know, maybe not Jim Rice, where Jim took a check swing and broke his bat. He had so much bat speed. But, you know, Yaz wasn't that big. You know, Carl Stremski. So, yeah, it is It is a great game. And Altuve, I mean, you know, you know the story. What signed for 15000 He went to, a, went to a tryout. They told you, come back when you're 15. He goes, I am 15. Because <laughs> he was so short. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, well, Mark, well, we've kept Jim for well over an hour. and we've, We certainly appreciate his time, and the story's been great. Is there any any, uh, any last questions that we want to post him while we still have him? Um, I don't really have any. I mean, there's a million questions, yeah, but yeah. it'll lead to another half hour or so. <laughs> <laughs> it's all been great stuff. Jim, I've got a question for you. With You, you spoke about the influence of your parents. Um teaching you the right way to, to approach life, basically, and, and as a result, you approach baseball the same way. We have a lot of parents in our audience. This is a, a grassroots all the way up to MLB front offices. And grassroots baseball is so different than it even was a decade ago. Um, what message would you have out there to parents who are raising baseball players? I'm using air quotes in, in, on an audio show, but what message would you have to parents based on some of the messaging you got from yours? Well, I think, you know, again, Everybody dreams about being a major league player. I mean, I you know, my dad, I don't know if you ever remember the uh, movie City Slickers. And Billy yeah. Crystal goes and they're, well, they're out at, well, you know, he's out on the cattle drive in the midst of New Mexico with Jack Palance as the trail boss. And he's with his buddy from New York. And he says, tell, you, tell me about your greatest day ever. And he talked right. about how his dad took him to Yankee Stadium and it was before color television and, and uh, you know, all those kind of things. Well, that happened to me when I was nine. And then 10 years later, because, I mean, I dreamed about being a major league player, but not everybody gets to realize that dream. And 10 years later, I came in on a labor head doubleheader when our pitcher got hit with a line drive in the hand and infield hit by Horace Clark and then struck out Mantle, Maris, and Elston Howard with about 12 high fastballs. Cool. So it's great to dream about things. But, again, I think my, my parents, you know, my, my dad was – you know, my, again, my adopted dad, he was, you know, he was Jewish. He owned a couple of dress companies and uh, he passed away when I was about nine and a half, 10 years old. And uh, I knew a lot of his friends and, you know, I'd go to spring training and they'd be down in Miami beach and they'd say, you know, your dad never would have let you play sports, but he made sure that you got a good education and that you, you, you know, you had a good work ethic. And, you know, when I grew up in Scottsdale, we, you know, we had a big, $35,000 house and it's 110 degrees. So you got to have every house have a pool in Phoenix and at least where I lived. And um, I used to mow the yard, clean the pool, help my mom clean on Saturday. And if I needed $5, my parents would give me $5 to go to the movies and, you know, get a bite to eat or whatever. And it was a good deal. And um, I think that's the kind of the way I, you know, live life. I mean, you know, you get paid a salary if you're a player, you get paid a salary if you're a broadcaster. You want to be prepared to do the best job you can. And um, I always thought pitching, like and I mentioned earlier about owning a restaurant, you know, you, you, you have a great game on Monday. You know, you pitch a shutout. You're going to pitch four days later, and you better be just as good if you're going to have a good year. And the other thing is, is that one thing I learned is um, continuity. Every year I won 20 games, I'd start the next season 0-0. 
So again, you better be prepared. That's, I think people say, do you miss baseball? I said, the, the thing I miss the most about it is the preparation to try to compete at the highest level. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great when, you know, and I'm watching some of the interviews with the Rangers, they were saying, this is what you dream about. Well, you do dream about, but it, very few people get to realize that dream winning World Series or even playing in the big leagues. So, you know, the foundation of, 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 you know, getting a good education and being polite and being a team player. I mean, that's, that's why we were so successful in Baltimore was because everybody played, played as one. And, um, Earl Weaver, you know, the Hall of Fame manager would have a meeting. He said, hey, listen, if, if our whole 40-man roster does what we're capable of doing, we're going to be have a good chance to be in the postseason. And usually we were a very, you know, very good contending team. I love that. And you're, you're, the, you're the best ambassador baseball could have. And we appreciate you sharing the messages on our show today um, with us. We're, we're, we're blessed to have you. Mark and Will, great show today, as usual. But uh, love the special guests you bring on and – as I say every week, there's a thread between you two that's there's a friendship, and, and, and I, I think the, the uh, interviews you do are beautiful. I mean, they bring out that friendship, and I loved hearing about the Oriole way. I think that was great today. Um, thanks to Jim Palmer, Hall of Famer, arguably the greatest right-handed pitcher of all time. Uh, I'll go to bat for that. We appreciate you coming on and sharing with our audience of 55,000-plus. Uh, and to our audience, thank you as well for supporting us enough to – Become the newest podcast on iHeartRadio's Powerful Podcast Network. Give this episode five stars. Write some great comments underneath for Mark and Will because we battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. And to our first sponsor here, Blackout Coffee, thank you for buying into us and believing in us. And as a thank you to our fans, 20% off at checkout. If you used the code DAVID, D-A-V-I-D, we kept it simple for you, all capital letters number 20 afterwards, and you'll get 20% out checkoff. After that, you'll get 15% in perpetuity. So, guys, thanks so much for a great show. And, Jim, thank you as well. You're welcome. Episode thanks, Jim. Yep, episode 339 in the books. I wish politicians look out for miners and not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat. And the old beast milk and welfare. God,